need some more to drink or some more pork chop, it's up there. Again, I want to thank Randy and Mark for spending the day uh, uh, cooking that. Well, like some pretty happy customers from the looks of things. As always, for Betsy and Stephanie for working, getting the rest of those things ready to go. Uh, tonight, uh, we are continuing our series through the book of Revelation. If you did not get the sermon notes, they're back there. And uh, I know sometimes it's hard to sit and listen to someone talk and talk and talk. So there are a lot of blanks on there this week for you to fill in. And uh, you say, well, I'm not in high school. I don't want to do that. Can you look up here for just a second? Don't. All right. <laughs> but for you that are like me that can struggle through staying awake sometimes after eating a lot, uh, it seems to be helpful. And hopefully you can study it through the week, make your own notes, etc. So we spent the first two weeks. And if you have your notes from the very first week, it says week one. If you would, erase that or mark through it and write week one and two. Because we spent two weeks looking at the main themes of the book of Revelation. Those seven big events that I believe are on God's timetable. And then last week, which says week two, if you'll write three in that place, we begin the book of Revelation. Verse one through eight. And we talked about how encouraging uh, verses one through eight are because we looked if you have your notes uh, from those, we looked at how he loved us, he washed us, he made us kings and priests, the royal priesthood. Uh, we looked at how he was victorious. Uh, we just looked at how encouraging it was. But coming in verses 9 through 20, I think are very unique uh, because there are a lot of people who have a lot of ideas about what Jesus is like. A lot of people can't wait to see him and, and see what it would have been like. He would have been like when he was talking to the woman uh, at the well or, or what it would be like. But what we see in John, Revelation chapter 1 is what Jesus is like. And so one of these days when you and I see him, uh, this is how we will see him, full of his glory. And so when we come to verses 9 through 20, uh, looking at John, and his writing of this, we're just going to jump right in. Now, my hearing aid battery has died. And so if you are on this side of the room, you'll have to you'll have to wave or you'll have to something. So starting in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I want to call your attention just to some of these here today. It says, I, John. And depending on who you read or listen to, it uh, really is this idea that it's almost an amazement. He is saying, I, John. Uh, how it's written is, I can't believe that I am doing this, that this is happening in my life. 
And I think it's very telling because he says, both your brother and companion. What he says is, I'm just like you. We are all servants of Jesus. He's not calling on his being an apostle. He's not calling on being one of the closest to Jesus. He's saying both your brother and companion. He says, we're in this together. He says, we are children of God. We are all equal in the family of God. And he goes on and he lists three things. Tribulation, kingdom, and patience. And if you're taking notes tonight, what you could write down is persecution, servants, and enduring together. There is no Christian who is going to get out of this world without suffering some persecution. The kingdom, it, it's talking about the fact that we are servants. We are all servants in the kingdom of God. And patience, that enduring, that God gives us what we need to endure to the end. And so all Christians fit into these three categories. We all have been persecuted. We all are servants. And we are all enduring to the end if we are saved. And this is important because so many times in church we have people who think they are more important than other people. Or they look down at other people. Or they've given more money than other people. Or they've been in a church longer than other people. Or they've got more education than other people. And what Paul says is, or John says is, I'm just like you. I am just a humble, persecuted servant of Jesus. And we are in this together. Listen to what John writes in 1 John chapter 3, those verses right below that. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. John says, if you have been born again, while church might be hard, while the people that we go to church with might anger us, there is never a point in our life when we, as the truly saved of God, do not love our fellow Christian brothers and sisters. And what that should cause a great concern is when people say, I love Jesus, but I hate church. Or I hate Christians. I hate people that are hypocrites that go to church on Sunday. But what John says is that's exactly the opposite. If you've truly been born again, you understand something. That those people in church are just as broken and fallen as you. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to do dumb things. And it's our responsibility to forgive. Now, sometimes those wounds can be so bad that we do not feel we can worship together. But that means you need to find somewhere to worship together. If you were to walk out this hallway on your right, the church covenant stands on that wall. It's a very special document. I think it is a very good document. And at the very end of it, it says, if you cannot fellowship together and worship here, that you will commit to worship somewhere. Because the child of God needs the people of God, needs a local church to love and to be a part of. And that's what he says there, because we're all equal. We're all sinners. We have all struggled, yet God has been good to us because it says of Jesus Christ. And he's, we've looked at the island of Patmos. And if you have last week's notes, you can see there what that island looked like and some of the things that are there. But in verse 10, it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Four times in the book of Revelation. Four times this occurs if you're taking notes. And those four places are Revelation 1.10, Revelation 4.2, Revelation 17.3, Revelation 21 10 
And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on talking about the Lord's Day. The New Testament church viewed the Lord's Day as Sunday. They worshiped on Sunday. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. The really important part of this is what does that mean to be in the Spirit? Some Bible commentators will say that well, he was just worshiping, but that's not what it means. It means that he was supernaturally and miraculously visited by God. The Spirit of God did something miraculously and, and supernatural, a miracle in his life to bring him into a place where he could receive this letter. All right, it is something that only God can do. The question that then gets asked was, well, what do you think about everybody else's close encounters with God? What do you think about everybody else? The guy that wrote 23 minutes in heaven, 23 minutes in hell, this story. I, listen, all I know is that I believe what the Bible says. I believe what the entirety of the Bible says. And uh, to me, I am very skeptical. All right. I'm very, very skeptical. Uh, I do not believe that people like Muhammad Joseph Smith, who started the Mormon church, have ever received more scripture than what we have. Now, other than that, I'm going to be very cautious. But what I can tell you is how they respond to Jesus is very important. And two, if it ever contradicts anything in the word of God, it's wrong. And if it doesn't contradict the word of God and it doesn't add to the word of God, I don't see what the purpose of it is. But... That's between them and the Lord. And I would make you very cautious about getting drawn in to those things. Goes on and says, as I was on the spirit in the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. That word for trumpet there and the context that it's used in the Bible is that it cannot be ignored if you're taking notes. Not to be ignored. It's calling your attention to something. It is something that you can't avoid. Uh, I played the trumpet in high school, and uh, my child now is trying to play the trumpet. And what I find myself doing as she tries to practice is I leave. Because it is not very good. All right? Um, it's like, put that thing in the end of it that muffles it. All right? That's what you need. And go play somewhere outside and let the dog howl at you. Right? But why? It is something you can't avoid. It is a trumpet. It is loud. It is attention-getting. It is why you see it at the beginning of coronations, before sporting events. Why? Because it calls your attention to something. But look what he says here in verse 11. Very, very important. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. We looked at that last week. And what you see, write in a book and send it. We see here that in this context that Paul, that John would have wrote this in Greek. He would have wrote this through his self because most likely there are two schools of thought on what it was like for John on this island. One school of thought is that he was there as a religious criminal. And so he would have been a part of the chain gang. He'd have been working in the mines. He would have been uh, slaving away at almost 90 years old. Other Bible commentators say, no, he would have been there and had some relative freedom. Uh, he would have had, uh, like he said, he could have worshipped. He could have rested as an old man. 
And I don't know which is right, all right? Depending on who you read, what the Roman government would decide, uh, it was clear. But according to Roman law, when you were convicted of, of any kind of witchcraft, of any kind of, of sorcery is what they would have tried him at, of rebellion and sedition because the Roman Empire was considered to be a god, he would have, one, received a beating. Two, he would have lost all rights and privileges or any land that he owned, not that he owned any. And so he would have been thrown there as a slave with nothing, with no rights and no privileges. And this is very important because while he's there, God visits him. And we talked about this a little last time, and I want to call your attention to it again. That even though your earthly circumstances might seem poor, and even though you might be going through great trials and tribulation, it does not mean that God cannot show up in your life. That God can't show up in your marriage. That God can't work in your situation. Because everything that we see from an earthly standpoint says, John is in a rough spot. It couldn't get much worse for John. I mean, honestly, it would have probably been better for John in his mind to die with the other apostles. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. And so uh, I don't think we have any 90 years old in this room, but I go to Heritage Woods a lot. Uh, every Sunday I go to Fox Meadows, and what I can tell you is at 90 years old, it is apparent that everything hurts. Everything hurts. It doesn't matter what it is, it hurts. And um, they probably not had the same lifestyle as what John had. They probably had the things a little different than what John had beatings and, and, and all of these things. And yet, here he is at 90, still serving the Lord. And so when we see this, I just really want you to see this, that as he writes this book, it is not written just for his benefit. It is rent, written to be shared, to be sent to these churches. And we looked at that map, and you had that map from last week, and the, the, the route that it was on, and and most scholars view it would have been a, a postal route of that day that, that the things would have been delivered in that order. And so there was a purpose behind it to permeate this whole earthly uh, seven churches, but also the churches that would have been spread throughout this area. And so thoughts or questions about that so far? Well, verses yeah. yes, sir. The only thing I would say is fact that we get that John B90 is from one source mm -hmm. and it's not a biblical source. Yeah. Well, if it's been 60 years or close to it at this point, even if he would have been 17... Almost 100 six, years, this was a disciple of the disciple. Yeah. We don't even know when Polycarp would have been died. Yeah. But realistically... Was, yeah. The disciple you know, of John and then mm -hmm. Irenaeus was the disciple. But on that, if it was written when we think it was, at least 50 to 60 years, I mean, he could have been in his late 70s, mid 80s, early 90s, I somewhere. Mean, he was an old man. Yes, an old man. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if we're staying to the Bible, it's, you know, yes. it's, it's an extra source. Yes, you are. We're ballparking it for sure. But an old man. All right, well, verses 12 to 20 are remarkable verses because it now begins to talk about what it is like in this encounter with the Lord. And for us who know the Lord and are someday going to see him, it is very exciting 
And so then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And you can flip over to the second page. Um, and you can see two different pictures of lampstands, depending on which scholar you use, which way they view it. Uh, both of those have been presented. Uh, the left one, as you know, is, is from the Old Testament and the Jewish uh, situation. The other one is uh, other renditions. And so either way, seven lampstands is seven. The Lord's in the midst of them. We just have to be very careful once again not to get so bogged down that we miss the point. And the point is, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like the flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And so don't forget there in verse 20, he's explaining what we're going to look at in these first few voices, verses. In verse 13, we see here, and in the midst. And uh, what we see is this idea that Jesus is working in the midst of his church. Jesus is working in his church. And uh, whether that would have been applicable in John's day or whether that is applicable in our day is that while we know that the spirit has been poured out, the spirit works and moves, that Jesus is involved in empowering and working in his church. That should remind us always that he is the head of the church. He is the reason we worship. He is the reason we celebrate. He is the one that our attention is focused on. Because without him, nothing gets done. You can have great programs. You can have great speaking. You can have great music. But it is him. Him at work in the lives of people. Him at work in the lives of his church. And because of that, we go on in this list. And he tells us how he is working in his church. And how he is dealing with his people. Because it goes on and says, one like the son of man. And so it's saying the same Jesus that we knew, that walked with us, that talked with us, that healed the blind, that, that, uh, that gave sight to the blind, that healed the sick, that, that healed the leper. It's him. And we know this term for son of man is a, is a very common, it's a, it's, a, it's a phrase from the Old Testament. We know it's repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. And it is pointing us to Jesus, right? Who is in the middle of the lampstands? Jesus. Who is the one that is the focus of this book? Jesus. 
Who is the one who is the focus of our preaching and teaching? Jesus. Who is the one who is the focus of our singing? Jesus. He is the focus. And it begins to talk about how he is dressed and what he looks like. And so it says there, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And if you were to flip to the book of Exodus, chapter 39, we really see this understanding of this. This would have been very similar to a garment wore by the high priest. And so we really look at this in the understanding that Jesus, as he works and moves in his church, functions as that high priest. And last week we talked about there's no need to go through a priest to find forgiveness. It's him. He is the one that intercedes before us. And so there in Exodus 39, starting in verse 2, he made the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen. And they beat the gold into thin sheets and cut it into threads to work it in with the blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen into artistic designs. They made shoulder straps for it to couple it together. It was coupled together at its two edges. And so while it is a symbol of the high priest, we know that the earthly high priest was not perfect and that he could only go into the Holy of Holies how many days a year? One, right? And so the Lord is showing us here that we now have a high priest who is at work with us. He is at work in our lives. He is making intercession before us. And truly, the greatest need that we have is the intercession for sin. For a high priest who could die, could offer a sacrifice on our behalf. And that is why, as a church, we must never lose this belief that Jesus truly is the only sacrifice for sin. He is the only one who was perfect and holy and righteous and could die in our place. He alone. No animal sacrifice is sufficient. Uh, no earthly system is sufficient. No amount of, of uh, confessions, no amount of, of giving, no amount of, of the rituals is enough. It all revolves around him as our high priest. Any questions? And I want to remind you as we study through the book of Revelations of this one simple truth. None of us knows everything. All right. So, so the second thing we see here about him, his head and his hair were like white wool, as white as snow. And so there is some difference of opinion here. Uh, it could be a reference to the Old Testament, uh, a sign of wisdom, that he is wise. It could be a symbol to the fact that he is omniscient, that he knows all. If you remember in Proverbs chapter 31, the silver-haired or the, the white-headed, those who have, uh, have aged, right, is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. And so for those who have grown older and have understood the things of God and the righteousness of God, the Bible says it's like a crown of wisdom. And so could it be that it's talking about the fact that he is omniscient? And if you don't know what omni means, it's a Latin prefix for all. So he's all knowing. He knows everything. Goes on and talks about his eyes and it follows this theme. And that for all means sees all. Nothing escapes his view. 
could mean omnipresent. That means that he is all places, all time. There is nowhere where he is not. There is nothing that he doesn't see. These words can also be used for the judgment of God. The fact that he sees everything, even in the secret places. Over in the book of Psalm, verse 139, starting in verses 1 through 3, and then finishing that chapter, and you can read this whole chapter, it's all about it. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my laying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. You skip down to the very end of that same chapter and says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. We'll do one more and then we'll stop. His feet, the same idea. This word for feet can mean power. It can represent victorious king in the Old Testament. And so it could represent the fact that he is omnipotent, all-powerful. And so he is all-knowing, he is always present, and he is all-powerful. Or it could just mean wisdom, that he sees all, and he is the victorious king. Either way, you could go. But in Psalms 110, verse 1, you've heard this verse quoted many a time. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so this idea of a powerful, crushing king, this idea of an all-seeing, all-knowing, nothing escapes his view, and his head full of wisdom and omniscient knowing of everything. And so that should be encouraging to us as Christians. That there's nothing that we're going through that he doesn't know. There's nothing we're going through that he doesn't see. And there's nothing we're going through that he does not have the power to change. Or to get us through what we're going through. Questions? So what, what you're saying here is what John's seeing, kind of parabolic here, what he's seeing with Christ is, is imagery yes. or actual well, I think that I think that it has to be imagery, um, but I'm not going to go to the point and say that it's, right. you know, but I think it has to be imagery and symbolic of the point that he's trying to teach these believers that are going through great persecution. Do you think the uh, first and early second century church would have needed this much explanation? I think, because I mean, the apostles were all dead by this point in John, right? Yeah. Well, I think they would have the first time because they're getting ready to hear it for the first time. Um, and so I think, yes, I think that the, I think the same problems the church has always had are the same ones that we've always had. That way, if you study church history, they're always fighting pretty much the same controversy over and over again. Someone's trying to change something about Jesus. Someone's trying to add to it or take away from it. And so uh, I think that, I think so, but I, you know, I mean, these guys would have just read it and uh, explained it. And I'm sure they would have been able to reference the Old Testament better than we can if they were really good practicing Jewish people who had known the Old Testament. I think they would have been able to, to put these together better than we do. 
Uh, that's what I have studied when I've been studying about the Millennial Kingdom and trying to find out what I believe about that and studying all of these verses in the Old Testament about the Kingdom of God. I didn't really pay any attention to it at all for my whole ministry because I'm like, hey, it's going to happen and it's going to happen. But the more I study and go through hundreds of verses in the Old Testament, what they would have heard and looked forward to the day when they had a, the righteous king on the throne, I don't understand that because I've never lived through what Jeremiah's day did, right? I've never been carried into captivity and slavery, and I didn't hear my grandparents talk about what it was like when Jerusalem was destroyed. So I think there there would have been, it would have been different, yes. I'm thinking that first century would have needed a football and once it made its lap around the seven churches from Laodicea, bring it right back to Ephesus. Yes, yes, very much so. Because as you know, the printing press was long, not invented. So uh, as this would have been handwritten, there would have been scribes that could have uh, penned it as well. But if you're taking it and reading it, you probably don't get it very long until the next one gets it. Uh, and so that is why the printing press revolutionized the Christian faith. Because you went from having one Bible into a Catholic church or a, to people having it. And being able to open it and read it and study it and to dig into it themselves. And, and to have it in the common language of the people. I mean, even to this day, the Catholic Church still struggles with how to have mass, right? It's in, in common language, or they have it in Latin, and, and you have people that have strong feelings both ways. And But most people don't know Latin. And so that whole debate and discussion and what we want, and what I believe the Bible teaches, is that the Lord wants you to have His Word. He wants you to know it and to read it and to study it. He doesn't want you to have to say, well, I think I'll call Jake. No, open it. The priesthood of the believer, you can open it and pray the same spirit that, that I have, you have, hopefully, and, and can reveal and show you what the Word of God says. I think the transition between the Old Testament and New Testament going from Hebrew to Greek emphasizes that, that God wanted to be in the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, let's just keep looking at Jesus. It goes on in this same passage of Scripture. Now begins to talk about his voice. His voice as the sound of many waters. Now this is very important to know that Paul, that John is on an island. Uh, he is near a bay where the crashing of the waves would have been continuously. There never would have been a time on this little bitty island where you didn't hear the waves crashing into the rocks. And the power and the the continuality and the, the impressiveness of this. And so he's talking here that you can't ignore it. On an island this little, no matter where you go, you are going to hear the ocean. And what he's saying is the significance, kind of like he did earlier with the trumpet, that God's word is not to be ignored. It is to be heard. It is to be obeyed. It is to be applied to our life. That's why the writer of this book says not only to read it, but to hear it and to obey it, to follow it, if you want the blessing that is promised from the Scripture. We know that people read God's Word with the intent of picking it apart. You can find, I shouldn't say things like this, but I'm going to anyway. You can go to most of these college seminaries, and they're full of half-infidel liberals. And they read the Word of God with one intent, to tear it apart and to destroy it. We call it higher criticism. 
It is a criticism of the word of God. They do not read it that it is true and that it is accurate. They read it with the intent of, well, Genesis is probably not literally true. Look up here. As long as I'm the pastor of this church, they're always going to hear that Genesis is literally true. Six days, not thousands, not millions. God created and he rested. All right. That is how I believe the Bible teaches us. As long as I'm here, you're going to hear that when Jesus came up out of that grave, it was not uh, metaphorical to you overcoming your problems. He was dead. Now he's alive. That's where the Bible is to be read, that it is true, that it is perfect, that it is accurate in every single way. And if God leaves scientists and archaeologists, archaeologists, whatever that word is, long <laughs> enough, they will eventually catch up. And if you ever can read W.A. Criswell's book on why I believe and preach the Bible is literally true. It's one of the greatest books I've ever written. Because when I came to faith and came back to church, that was something that was brought to your attention, right? I'm going to go to, go to seminary. I'm going to take classes. And, and I went to Liberty for a couple of years. And it's a wonderful conservative school. But in my undergraduate degree, I had people in there from Unitarian churches and apostolic churches and of all background. And I had a woman Methodist preacher. And that just just didn't do good with me in there. And, and she was talking about the fact that she didn't believe the Bible. And so, you know me, I'm quick-tongued and quick-tempered, and I was like, why are you in this class? And it's public forum posting, you know, which I don't know what I'm doing most of the time when it comes to technology. My professor sent me a message saying, hey, you can't put that on her. I'm like, I would kick her out of this school. He said, Jake, there's like 100,000 people up there, very few of them are Christians. Well, then get them out of my class, all right? This ain't some atheist. This is some lady who stands before a pulpit and preaches the word of God and tells her people what the Bible says and stand here and just told our class that she didn't believe it. I was like, that's nonsense. And needless to say, I apologize privately, not publicly. I wouldn't do it that. So, but I hence now know I'm not as mature then as I am now. But it's just the way it is. And so we have to hear this. His voice cannot be ignored. John is trying to tell them that this book might be confusing. It might be overwhelming. That it is coming from Jesus. And you and I need to hear it and to believe it and to apply it. Sorry I got off on that rave. I'm very passionate about the Bible. I should have said amen, but that's all right. It goes on. His voice was like the many waves. He had in his right hand seven stars. Now, this is where we have to look to the end of this to find out what it's talking about. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, we're going to look at what the two differences of opinions are when we get to the end of this. So we're going to skip forward. But what I would write there is holding his servant leaders. Holding his servant leaders. It goes on and talks about his mouth. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And this word for sword does not mean a small dagger. It means a long sword that you would use in battle, that the Roman army would carry, that they would use. As you know, they had a shield. The Roman army fought with a shield. Uh, they fought with spears, but they had swords. So, so as they built their wall, they would come. They could reach out behind the wall, stab, pull back. And we know that the Roman army evolved over the years. But this idea of a sword represents two things. The power to judge and to protect. A sword can be used to take someone's life or it can be used to defend someone's life. 
And so while it destroys the enemies of God, the Bible talks about the word of God as a sword. It also can mean to protect. So the word of God can either destroy, cause a stumbling block, or it can be salvation to those who believe. And the last one, then we'll stop and talk. His countenance or his face. Now, I think this one is really, really important to stop for for just a minute. Because it talks about his full deity. He is fully God. And when we see him on this earth, we know that he is cloaked, right? He looked like an earthly man, but yet he was fully God and fully man. But just for a moment, if you remember, in the book of Matthew, that veil is pulled back. And if you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And I'm going to say this, and once again, I'm going to get in trouble. That is why I believe that crucifix, the cross, should not have Jesus on it. I believe the cross should not have Jesus on it. The reason I believe that is because he's not. I believe that when we see him now, he is not the bloody, beaten servant on the cross. He is the victor that overcame sin and death and the grave. And so while we remember his death and we honor his death, we live in his resurrection. We live because he overcame sin and death and the grave. And so what we see here is Jesus as he is. You will not see him bloody and beaten and, and weak and feeble as he was when he could not carry the cross himself. What we see here is him in his full power and glory and beauty and who he is. And it should cause us to step back in awe. And be amazed at what happens when Jesus overcame the grave. When Jesus overcame sin and death. And it was returned to him what he's always had. Jesus has always been the Son of God. He has always existed. The Bible says that he was in the beginning. Right? He, he is not created. He is not a brother to Satan like many cults would teach you. And so we are seeing just a little taste of this. Like they seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's a moment of awe and wonder and power. And for the early church, who, think about this, the stories of him rising from the dead and, and revealing himself and being in one place and then being in another place and, and uh, walking through walls and being in a room and, and all of these things. That's what Jesus wants them to focus on. As victorious. As the defeater of the grave. As the overcomer of sin and death. And you say, Jake, I don't agree with that. Well, I'll show you that in a minute, all right? Because that's what he follows it up with. But questions, thoughts? Uh... I got a very stupid question. Ever a stupid question? Well, I got a kind of thing in my head, so maybe you can more. But Probably just a stupid answer. Do you think that the hypothetical union still applies in Revelation when he is both fully God and fully man at this point, too, right? Are you saying that he is, his humanity is fully shed at this point? Does the hypostatic union apply to this vision of revelation? Hypostatic union apply to this vision. I believe that he is uh, always fully God and fully man in the sense that he took on flesh since then. Yeah, yeah. I believe that um, 
any of the nature that was sinful, which was none for him because he didn't act on his sin. Uh, but he has been returned to his full glory. And so I, I think that that's a, uh, I think that's a good question. And one that I will study more. When he was raised to life in the Gospels, he was still, like, he wasn't like this, right? When he hears the disciples. Well, I mean, I think that, um, I think that you've seen some of it in certain instances. I mean, he had his resurrected body. So I, I think that you just have to kind of uh, wade through it with, uh, I'm not really sure how to explain that in the right way. What I do know is that there were times when uh, they didn't recognize him, right? They walked with him on the road and, and didn't recognize it until he revealed himself. And so I think that's just, uh, I think that's a really good question. And I will, I'll do some more studying on it. And I'll try to have a better answer next week. That's good. The double-edged sword, even through Jesus' life and going all the way back to creation, he spoke everything into existence. That, that show of power coming from his mouth was from the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, in the garden, he spoke in regards mm -hmm. that were coming to arrest him. Absolutely. Backwards. Absolutely. Other questions? See, no stupid questions, just dumb answers. All right. 17 and 18. We're just going to march right on. Get you out here hopefully early tonight again. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. Now, I know this is going to... This is going to be upsetting to some people, and I don't care. All right? I'm going to take a couple weeks off, so next week it'll be someone else's problem. I do not like songs that devalue the majesty and the holiness of who God is. So I don't like songs about walking along with the Lord, holding hands, hugging. When we see him in the New Testament, after his resurrection... It is always an awesome and powerful and wonderful thing. Now, I'm not saying he's not a friend that sticks close with our brother. I'm not saying that he doesn't care about our needs and wonders. But I think we have to be very careful that we do not bring him down to one of the boys. Right? We'll do that, amen. <laughs> I think it's, it's in a lot of it. And I know there are some old songs that are like that, but what I see is a lot of new songs like that. Because when we see him after the resurrection... He is glorified, and he is powerful, and he is amazing, and all of these things. And when John witnesses him, he didn't just stroll through heaven together, right? He, he falls down as in dead, like dead, dead. Like the word we get necromancy from, like literally dead, all right? And Jesus, though, reaches down, puts his hand on him, and says, do not be afraid. See, that's what's so wonderful. We see the holiness. We see the perfection. We see the awe of who Jesus is that he cannot even stand and look at him. Yet we see a servant who reaches down and says, do not be afraid. We see that two ways. We see a holy, perfect, righteous God who has to judge and punish sin. But yet we see a servant. We see a Jesus who came and died in our place. And so we see here in this passage of Scripture, it says, I am the first and the last 
And what I have wrote down here is he has power over time. He has existed outside of time. He has existed before time. And he has the power over time. I am he who lives. He has the power over life. Everything is alive because of him. And was dead. Once I said earlier about the fact that Jesus was not asleep. He was not figuratively. He was dead. That means he has the power over sin. Because sin leads to death. And then verse 18. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible. I had this verse on my shirt that I met my wife. And he who lives and was dead. Behold I am alive forevermore I am. And amen. And I have the keys of Hades in death. He has the power over death. He is the one that is going to unlock and judge. He is the one who gets to say when we read in the book of Revelation at the great white throne judgment, he is the one. He is the one that will raise the dead to stand before that great judgment where they will receive their resurrected bodies that will last forever in the lake of fire. He has it. Satan does it, he does. And that means my salvation, my eternal life, my hope rests in him. But it also means that those who reject him, there is no workaround. There is no other way. He is the only one that has the keys. The church can't keep you out of heaven. As we know in the book of Matthew chapter 18, there have been some terrible teaching that the earth, that, that what's on earth can be bound, and that means that God can kick you out of, or that the, the church can kick you out of, of, the, of the kingdom of heaven, or keep you in the kingdom of heaven, or take you from a holy place and put you in heaven. But that's not what it means. What that means is when you agree with what God agrees with, then it happens. All right? You don't get to make him agree with you. What he says here is he has the power over death. It's showing about his supremacy, his power, his glory, his authority. Any questions? He who lives. He who lives. Oh, the power of life. The power over life. He is the only one who gives a life. And the Bible tells us that life more abundant. Verses 19 and 20. I know I said we'd tackle these when we got here. So, here we go. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So there are two major thoughts. I don't agree with one of them, but I want to teach them both to you because I think that's what you ought to be able to hear. So some people believe that each church has an angel, like a guardian angel, and that's who he's talking to. But this word here means messenger. And while sometimes in the book of Revelation it is translated angel, sometimes it is not. And so if you've ever heard of Matthew chapter 18, this is where the belief that people have guardian angels, but the Bible never teaches that a church has a guardian angel. But in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now what has happened with this verse is it has is, it is formed all kinds of books and beliefs that you should pray to your angel, that you should know your angel's name, that you should, and the Bible doesn't teach any of that. This is the only reference that says that. 
And so what we believe is the Lord sends angels to watch over us, to protect us. To That's all fine. That does not make you off the deep end. But if you become an angel worshiper, you have turned it into an idol. And then it becomes sin. The other point of view is that these are written to the pastors of the church, the elders of the church, the leader of each local church. Revelation 2, verse 1, you'll see it as he begins to talk to the churches. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And so the church in this day and age, with what they believed and what they would have held to, I don't believe there is any logical way to connect that to an angel, a guardian angel, why would an angel need a message from John? I want you to think about that for a second. When we see the, the throne room of heaven in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, the angels are there. They're witnessing what's going on. Uh, they don't have the power to open the scrolls, but they are a part of what's going on. So why would John need a message from Jesus to read back to an angel? To me, that doesn't make sense. But I have been wrong numerous times today already. So what I believe is, it is one to the local church leader, the pastor, the shepherd, the under-shepherd of the local church. Two, I believe it is one to encourage the local pastor at this time. Whether it would have been a plurality of elders or a single elder, that's a, a discussion for another day, okay? But who would have needed encouraging in this day and age? When the church was being persecuted, you're believing faithful members were being arrested. The people were being arrested and denying their faith, as we know was very common in the early church. And so you were being thrown in jail for preaching. You remember why Paul or John was on this island? Because he preached the truth. He preached about Jesus. He didn't compromise. He would not back down from what he saw. So I believe this is written to his fellow laborers to keep doing what God had called them to do. But also not just them, but the congregation as a whole. I believe this is applicable because in Hebrews chapter 13, a verse that pastors never quote, but like I said, I got broad shoulders. Hebrews 13 verse 17, it is a difficult verse for churches and pastors to know how this works and honors Jesus. Because pastors abuse this verse and churches abuse this verse. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as to those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. And so as a pastor, I am the under-shepherd of this church. It's Jesus' church. My only authority is the Word of God. That's it. All right? I don't have any because my title or my degree, the Bible is the authority of everything that we do. But it is also my job to love you and to pray for you because one of these days I'm going to have to give an account for you. Some people say I don't agree with that. I don't think that's accurate. We shouldn't have to answer for other people. I'm just reading what it says to you. And trust me, I've tried to get out of it many a times with people I didn't like. All right? I'm like, I ain't worried about them. They, they can get what's coming to them. And the Lord has to remind me, really? 
and you must give an account. And then the next part, it's not always my favorite either. Let them do so with joy. And I'm going to be honest with you. If you know me, I'm not a real joyful person. When someone is describing Jake, it's not, boy, he is just full of joy, isn't he? No, that's not, that's not how I have ever been described. Because that is because I can let this overwhelm me instead of focusing on this. And I am guilty of that. Not with grief. I hear pastors all the time talk about how bad it is and how hard it is and how they just can't make it. And I understand all of that. But at some point, they need a shirt that says, suck it up, buttercup. Keep serving or quit. Keep praying or quit. Keep preaching or quit. Get out of it if you can. If you can't, recognize that what you've been called to do is nothing, is second to nothing. Bill Stafford told me one time, we were talking about the fact that he knew Governor Huckabee. And he told Governor Huckabee, when uh, Governor Huckabee left being a pastor to run for governor, why would you try to take a demotion? Why would you try to take a job that's less than what you have now? I never thought anything about that. But I think it's true. And so it says here, though, that we must understand something about ministry and about the fact that maybe God's calling you into ministry. Maybe it's not as a senior pastor. Maybe God's going to give you a Sunday school class to oversee and to pray for and to look out for. There's going to be some unjoyful times. Maybe God's going to call you to work in a kid's Sunday school class and throughout the entire summer you're like, why can't parents bring their kids to church? I don't understand why. Alright? And if you're looking up here at me that's you, I'm sorry, but it doesn't bother me. That's true. Alright? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some have done. And so there will be discouragement. There, You will feel like you are beating your head against the wall. I'll tell you how bad I can be. People will offer, hey, Jake, you want me to help you with drinks? Oh, no. I'll stand over here where there's no people. <laughs> Jake, you want me to help you wash dishes? Nope, I got it. Not very many people back here. I can be that person. But I think that what he's talking about here, if you read this, is the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven chance churches. And what we see is that Jesus has not only his church, but his servants and his people palm of his hand. And that means when we worry, when we doubt, when we fear, when we get discouraged, when we get beat down, that we have to remember that he is still in the midst of his church. He is still at work. He has not said, I'm going to abandon the lampstand. I'm not going to abandon the stars. This is my church. These are my people and these are my servants. And so I believe it's a great encouragement as we finish up chapter.